Okay, welcome to Cinelit. Uh, my name is Adam Marsh, and we am joined again, as ever, by our resident expert at Cinelit, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm fine, Adam. Thanks. Looking forward to this. Yeah, it should be a fun, wide-ranging talk about quite a small area of cinema, but uh, <laughs> equally, uh, a lot happened in that first 30 years of cinema. We're talking about crime cinema overall, but we're going to focus our gaze on silent crime and early 1930s gangster films, and the birth of that kind of genre of cinema. And hopefully we'll continue with our crime series as the year goes along. We'll keep dropping back in occasionally to look at a different facet of crime cinema. Are you looking forward to spending a year with the criminals, Daryl? Very much, yeah. We've got an outline all planned out, uh, you know, yeah. dipping in and out of it. But uh... And there's areas as well, because... I did that outline. It's about some like 18, 19 episodes of podcasts. And since I've done that, five or six subject matters, I thought, oh, that'd be a good one for a podcast. That'd fit in with a crime one. So I think we could go on till the end of 2024 with yeah. uh, podcasts about crime. It's amazing how varied this field is. So, uh, you know, hopefully we can convey that. Well, I guess crime is one of those genres that never goes out of fashion. You sure. know, it's always on TV. People are always making crime movies, whether it's murder mysteries, whether it's um, bank heist movies, whether it's a Alfred Hitchcock style thriller. People are always making those and they never seem to go out of fashion. I suppose that's because it's it's always part of everyone's real lives, you know. Even if you're not directly affected by it, you pick up a newspaper or switch on your PC or whatever, and you're reading reports about crime. So, uh, you know, it, it never goes away in real life. So the movies just follow suit, I think. Absolutely. So we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to, we're going to go all the way back to the very, very birth of cinema and talk about how the crime cinema developed, I guess, in those early years. So we're looking back at the silent days, really early short little one-reelers of cinema, early days. And a lot of these are available online to watch, so we'll post up some links to these early silent films um, on our supporting notes on our website. But I want to start with arguably the biggest name in crime, Sherlock Holmes. So we're, uh, we're going to start with a film called Sherlock Holmes Baffled, 1900. Uh, one of the earliest crime films that I can find out about, Daryl, unless you can correct me there. Yeah, there, there were a, a few prior to that, but um, this is certainly one of the earliest ones that still exists. You know, as we know, a lot of silent cinema has vanished, about about 80% of it or something. So uh, we're, we're lucky to be able to see this one on YouTube. And it's less than a minute long. It's about 58, 59 seconds long and packs a lot into that uh, 58 seconds. Yes. Take note, Christopher Nolan. You don't need three hours. <laughs> you just need 58 seconds and you can still do a cracking crime movie. <laughs> but yeah, so the basic plot is it's more of a, a, a one of those early cinema special effects showcases, isn't it, rather than a, a crime story in effect. Yes, it sort of adds elements of fantasy. So already you've got that sort of genre crossover thing going on. Everyone gets so excited about that these days, our genre mashups and all this. It's happening here in the year 1900. <laughs> yeah, so we've got, we got basically these, it's, this guy visits visit Sherlock Holmes and starts to disappear in front of him. So it's 58 seconds, you're not getting a, 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 an in-depth storyline, but it seems more of a showcase to show the special effects of editing. So they have like explosions and the guy disappears and he turns up behind Sherlock Holmes. It's very evocative of that kind of journey to the moon, trip to the moon sort of style of filmmaking in that period. But what it does do is it puts Sherlock Holmes on the big screen straight away. So Sherlock Holmes, obviously massively popular character in fiction around that period and on the stage in the 1900s. The the earliest uh, Sherlock Holmes one on screen of... Of, of a character that would go on to be a major part of the 20th century's crime cinema and TV. Yeah, although I think it's fair to say that if you didn't know this was a Sherlock Holmes film, you'd never be able to work it out from looking at the character. No. He's, he's, a, he's a cigar smoker rather than a pipe man, for one thing, and uh, he's, he's, he's not got the deer stalker and all that. So, uh, yeah, a very, very different Mr Holmes. Yeah. So, as I, a lot of these are really short, so we'll move on through them fairly quickly. I guess the other one to stand out is, is probably one of the earliest Westerns in The Great Train Robbery, 1903, 12 minutes. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, again, you know, this uh, we keep quoting Martin Scorsese on these podcasts, and um, Scorsese loves the film. And famously, of course, there's a shot in the movie of uh, a character played by the actor Justus T. Barnes, which is a great name, who fires a gun directly at the audience at the end of the film, which must have been a shocker in 1903. And I think audiences by then were getting a bit more sophisticated about cinema, but even so, it's uh, to actually be facing, looking down the end of a gun barrel from a guy on screen looking very menacing, you know, must have been something. It was still something when Joe Pesci did it at the end of Goodfellas, uh, which is where Scorsese uh, lifted it from, from The Great Train Robbery. Now, he's said about uh, Great Train Robbery, Basically, in Goodfellas, we've got a bunch of criminals who do this incredible robbery, and then they all kill each other, and then the police get them at the end. It's exactly the same story as the Great Train Robbery. Well, some some stories never go out of fashion. I've been talking about crime and 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 criminals getting their comeuppance through their own greed is something that gets established fairly early on in in this crime cinema, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. And as you say, you know, this is a Western, but it uh, it sort of fits into the crime genre by virtue of its robbery and the way its characters sort of interact and uh, the, the brutality of it and so on. So, yeah, again, you've got this sort of genre crossover thing going on there. And, and yes, yeah, Scorsese is absolutely right. In 11 minutes, it's got the same plot as Goodfellas. But uh, what, what impressed me about it, uh, seeing it again, um, you know, it's a film that I, I sort of return to every so often. And uh, watching it again in preparation for this, it was notable um, how innovative it was in, in terms of its storytelling and use of camera Use of special effects, but not not in a sort of trick way that you were talking about earlier with with the sort of trick films of of the 1890s and early 1900s. We're getting things like matte shots and things coming in here, moving camera, which would have been, you know, fairly innovative. Um, This isn't the first film to use them, but uh, it it would have been one of the very early ones. And um, we've got... Partial tinting, which is used for effect, you know, used not not just to colour the film in and make it look exciting because it's red and green, but the tinting's actually used to enhance things. Like there's there's an explosion at one point, and the screen suddenly bursts into sort of yellow and orange as, as this bomb goes off. There's some brutal violence as well. There's uh, even even though it's done with a, a pretty obvious looking dummy. One, one of the uh, the cowboy gang beats a victim really, really savagely over the head and then throws him off a moving train. So, uh, you know, so it is, it is uh, you know, pretty hard-hitting stuff for its time. Yeah, I mean, just, just to go back to what you're saying about the, the crime Western thing like that, I mean, we call it a Western now, but this was shot in 1903, and it, it's based on the true story of Butch Cassidy robbing, robbing the train. In 1900. Yeah. yeah, so it's pretty contemporary. Yeah, It's a yeah. contemporary crime yeah. story. The fact yeah. that it's now a Western is, is almost like, regardless, is it, at the time it was a contemporary crime film. I thought it was fascinating. And that's sort of like filmmakers looking to real life to depict crimes goes on throughout, particularly in the gangster period of the early 1930s yeah. of depicting real life characters. Well, it's still still happening right up to date. I mean, how how many versions did we have of the the the, the jewel robbery in London? You know, the, uh, sure. the the gang of the gang of old criminals getting the old lags getting back together. You know, several versions of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. at least two I know of, and I don't yeah, think I need yeah. to see a third. <laughs> But again, it shows how that ripped from yesterday's headlines thing has been going on throughout cinema. Here it is in 1903. You know, yeah, absolutely. Again, it ties back into that. People make movies about what's happening in in the world, and and crime is always happening in the world. Um, let's move on. Let's move on to uh, the next film on our little hit list. And it's a film called The Musketeers of Pig Alley, and it's directed by a fairly big name in cinema history, and a big name in crime history because he's gonna he's gonna play in a part in other areas as we go as we go along. But D.W. Griffith. Yeah, and uh, yeah. it's a short film, gangster film. It's, it's only seventeen minutes. It's got Lillian Gish in it, Elmer Booth. And again, I don't think it had the impact, but it was one of the earliest depictions of organised gangsters in cinema. As in, like, you know, it's organised crime, the mafia, that kind of style of, of crime cinema. 
Yeah, and again, it's uh, like like Great Train Robbery. It's another film that you know it's sort of expanding the the the, the length of what a film can be, and and uh, the the way a film is set out and planned out. Uh, moving from scene to scene and so on, but yeah, Musketeers of Pig Alley. I must admit, I've, I've not seen it for some years. I've not rewatched it for for this, but uh, yeah, very very important film in terms of what we're talking about here. It's classified as one of the first depictions of the gangster in yeah, yeah. In, in how we know it. Um, I don't think it had it didn't really have the impact on gangster cinema that that history potentially would have thought. That obviously comes a bit later with things like Underworld, but we'll, which we'll talk about later on. A great little film. Before we move on to the more feature-length, silent influences on, on, on crime cinema and, and depictions of crime cinema, I want to make a little mention of a, a British crime cinema, uh, 1905, where we have a hero dog rescued by a rover. Fabulous film. It's got a real interesting history, this one, because in terms of the physical film itself, apparently it was so popular that the copies of the film itself actually wore out. And I think they had to remake it at least once, I think twice. They had to refilm it just so that they could uh, they could keep sending uh, prints around the cinemas and around, you know, the, the halls and fairgrounds or wherever it was playing. So, uh, you know, that's that's certainly not going to happen in this day and age with, uh, with di- digital, you know. Uh, here we are, a film that's so popular that the film actually wears out. <laughs> but what an incredible film it is. Um, you know, it's a kidnap story featuring a sort of lassie-type uh, hero dog. And um, I, I love the, the, the performing dog is, is fabulous. It's got real imaginative early use of techniques, uh, like uh, there's a great uh, bit where they set up a camera at one end of the street and they have the action move towards it as the dog is sort of let loose and it rushes up the street towards the camera. And they just hold the shot for for several seconds while the dog runs towards us. And then there's a great sort of narrative thing where we we see the dog sort of going to find the kidnapped baby and trying to find out where it's been taken to. And we follow it as it sort of rushes through the streets and then swims across a river and so on, shakes itself off on the other side and, and, uh, you know, runs to the, the hideout where the baby is being found. And then we follow that same journey back and then we follow it back again. As, as the dog sort of returns home and, and then it lassie style, you know, or whatever in traditional sort of hero dog style, it, it sort of convinces its master to to, to follow it. And, and then we follow that same journey. And it's very interesting when it, when it gets back to the riverbank because you think, oh, it's now got a human being with it. It can't just swim across. So we'll leave you to watch the film and find out what happens there. It's available online, so we'll post a link to that. But it's um, it's one of those ones where it just feels like everything comes together in a perfectly formed storyline, plot, exciting exciting action. It all comes together in a nice little uh, package, um, You know, arguably for one of the first times. Uh, in, in cinema history in, in that yeah. it wasn't a novelty it was a fully fledged story fully fledged fiction um, allegedly it was the first film to, uh, to pay actors to be involved in it allegedly and uh, another interesting fo- fact about this is like the name Rover for a dog wasn't that popular until this film came out and then literally <laughs> everyone's calling their dog Rover which um, uh, yeah amused me no end <laughs> yeah, and again, it's all over in less than seven minutes. But it, it's got it's got a, a storyline that you could expand to a feature, you know. But uh, um, there's also a sequel to it as well, as well as it having these having to be remade because the negative had worn out. It was so popular they actually did a sequel, which must have been one of the early sequels. That's called The Dog Outwits the Kidnapper. That has also survived. It's also on YouTube, and it gets a high recommendation from me, if for nothing else, for the scene where the dog drives a car. Oh, you see, now now I'm going to have to go and see that, Daryl. You know, it's like, you know, what more could you want from a movie? A dog driving a car. Yeah, so uh, the dog outwits the kidnapper. Don't miss it. Rescued by Rover Two, as they call it today. Oh, very good, very good. Okay, so let's move. Let's move on to some slightly more. Obviously, these are all short, fifteen, twenty minutes tops. Um, short films. We move on to features, and the first one I want to really flag up is um, it, we, we we move away from Hollywood, we move away from Britain, and we move away to France, where they were making 
a bunch of cereals between 1913 and 1914, two years. They made five cereals based on the popular pulp character Fantomas, a massively popular character in France and, and indeed around the world at that time. And they made five cereals by uh, the filmmaker Louis Fayard. Yeah, I'd, I'd pronounce it like that as well, Adam. I yeah. think we're right, yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, you noticed my little pause there as I <laughs> tried to remember <laughs> how to pronounce his name. Louis yeah. Riard. But this, this guy directed, like, he only directed films since, like, the mid-20s. But he directed over 600 films during that period and many, many cite Fantomas as his masterpiece in that period. Fascinating depiction of the roots of, of, of crime cinema. Obviously, it was coming from those pulp fiction novel novels and pulp fiction stories and being put onto screen for mass audiences. Um, Sherlock Holmes came from that same background. We're going to talk about Dr. Mambusa a little bit later on, but he came from that. And there was a, there was a whole raft of other um, characters. They were making Sherlock Holmes films around the same period, in the early 20s, I think. And they shot a load in the 20s in France. So they, they obviously had a model in France of making these serials, making these long-running series over a short period of time. And the Fantomas one is one is the one that really stands out. Yeah, it does still exist as well. I, I was yeah. very lucky some years ago with uh, our, our old pal Dave Gold, now sadly departed, yeah. who was a projectionist at the Metro Cinema in Derby prior to... Uh, the opening of the quad and Dave invited me one day to take a day off work and go down to the metro where he was showing to the film students all six and a half hours of the uh, the, the, the five Fantomas movies so uh, yeah. they they range between uh, I think the shortest one's about 54 minutes and the longest one is over 90 and so I watch all five in a day and uh, well, that was that was better than working, I can tell you. <laughs> I've got a quote here from uh, there was a contemporary critic in 1914. The critic Maurice Reynal wrote, um, "There is nothing in this involved, compact, and concentrated film but explosive genius." <laughs> that's uh, you know that that's high praise. One thing that's been pointed out um, from uh, people who know their, their sort of uh, French history from this period is that audiences in 1913 and 1914 in France would have been really, really, really familiar with the Fantomas as a character and with the stories that were being dramatised by Fouillard in, in, in these serials. So um, they wouldn't have actually gone to watch the movie as a suspense movie, it wouldn't have been a case of, oh, let's go and we don't know what's going to happen and let's look out for the twists. They'd have watched it in the way that people watched, say, the Harry Potter series recently. Mm. When the Harry Potter movies came out, uh, you know, uh, when they started coming out sort of 20 years ago, there's this massive fan base all over the world that had read the books and they knew every word of the novels and so on. And they were going to see the Harry Potter films just to see how those stories played out on screen. Now, it was the same with Phantomass in 1913, 1914. Audiences were going to see those. They'd already know what was going to happen in the movie. So it was a case of, let's see what the filmmakers have done with this, which is quite interesting, a little bit different to going to see Rescued by Rover and not knowing how it was going to come out, you know. Sure, I guess that's one of the the the, the benefits of creating uh, creating films based on those long running characters. Obviously, the same would be like when we watch Hound of the Baskervilles. Now, it's not so much what's going to happen; it's just going to how are they going to do it? You How's know, this they, version yeah. going to be different to to the ones we've seen before? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. And obviously, the, 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 one of the, the the joys of sort of like I guess at that period of cinema, particularly that that up until like the sound sides come in, these films were packaged and resent all around the world. And anyone can watch them anywhere in the world and, and get from them the same things as, as in the native language that they were created in. But because they, they weren't, they were silent. Yeah, I mean, sound cinema coming in, in in the late 20s was, of course, an absolute game changer. Mm. But it did have its downside. And, and yeah, suddenly films weren't, weren't international anymore. No, exactly. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, the Fantomas one went 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 all around the world and and was was was, was done in America again in the nineteen twenties. They did a twenty episode uh, Fantomas serial in America as well. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. They just utilised the name and made their own thing about it. But 
they did, you know, they utilized people were obviously aware of the name Fantomas, that there was enough credit in that in that name for them to remake it and and, and do their own story in America. So, um, and that yeah. character went on and on, you know. Just to entice people even further into the world of Fantomas, we ought to throw a few titles at them. The episodes, the the the, the sort of long episodes here, um, were called things like. Fantomas in the Shadow of the Guillotine, Juve mm-hmm. uh, versus Fantomas, The Murderous Corpse, The False Magistrate, and my favourite, Fantomas versus Fantomas. Oh, and, then, and then what happened? Each of, the, each of these, as I say, ran between about an hour and 90 minutes, but each long-form episode... Was was a serial in, in itself. So, well, like you'd be watching it as a single entity and as part of a longer serial. But mm. each of the hour-long things had its own chapter titles within it as well. So, each each hour or each ninety minutes would be broken up into sort of fifteen-minute chunks, and they had their own titles. Things like the Human Skin Gloves, Disaster on the Simplon Express, and the Wall that Bleeds. So. Uh, yeah, do what I did and pack it all into one six and a half hour sitting. Wow, yes. But yeah, I mean, those titles, they're, they're very reminiscent, obviously, of, of serials in general. They had those great titles. And uh, Fouillard didn't stop there because he, he followed up with um, a 10 part serial the year after, 1915, called uh, Les Vampires. Yeah, um, not, nothing to do with with vampires as we know them, but it, it was the name of a gang of criminals. And again, if you go on the Wikipedia page for Les Vampires, you can actually watch all ten episodes on Wikipedia. Wow, there's links to the whole serial on there. So amazing! I know why I'm doing this afternoon. <laughs> That's um, <laughs> about seven hours long in total, I think. So yeah. Oh, uh, all right, this afternoon and early evening. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, ten ten episodes, all all intact, and you you don't even have to visit YouTube to watch them. You can just link to them from directly from Wikipedia. They're all embedded in. So uh, oh, amazing. And then, of course, Fouillard uh, did a version of the uh, Judex as well, which became a French pulp favorite mm. over the decades. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, he died in '25, so we were robbed. But before that, just just a massively prolific oh, filmmaker. He, he packed them in, yeah. And, and 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 the character, the character carried on. It's been it's been a good while since we've had a Phantomas film. I think the last the last adaptation was a 1980 TV series. So it's been a good, you know, 40 years nearly of a world without Phantomas. If any French filmmakers out there are listening in, you know what to do. Yeah, yeah, do it. So obviously, we talked about Phantom. It's got obviously it's got his natural thing, but the influence it had on serials, which obviously a lot of serials had elements of crime. It was either even the more fantastical ones were based around crime or espionage or whatever. But it also had a big effect on other filmmakers, and one of those filmmakers being Fritz Lang. Fritz Lang in 1922 made his first. Uh, Dr. Bamuse film. I say film because it is like four and a half hours long. So I mean, it's sort of two films. It's got two <laughs> titles. So uh, yeah, you sort of watched it as a double bill sort of thing. Yeah. Dr. Mabuza, the, the overall umbrella title for it is Dr. Mabuza the Gambler. Yeah. But uh, the, the two parts are called The Great Gambler and Inferno. And uh, yeah, runs to about four and a half hours, as you say. Yeah, and it's, it really, really does set a lot of the rules for, for you know, the, the future of crime cinema, I think, while, while going into some areas that nobody has copied since. You know, it's, uh, it's all over the place, really. Well, that's I mean, one, of, one of the descriptions. I mean, it translates as it's Dr. Mabusa de Spieler, Dr. Mabusa the Gambler, but it could equally be translated as Dr. Mabusa the Puppeteer. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Mabusa, the actor, and he embodies all three of those kind of um, roles within this thing. He, he is the gambler. He is a puppeteer, a, a man who manipulates people. 
uh, and, yeah, uh, yeah. an actor in, in disguises and things like that. So, and, and he set, he sets that sets that template for the cinematic sort of criminal mastermind. You know, very much in the tradition of, of literary figures like Fu Manchu and so on, who then came came to cinema um, slightly later, around around the same sort of time, in fact. But um, but yeah, Mabuse is a great character. He's a psychologist. But he's also a hypnotist, and the combination of those two things, as you say, makes for manipulation. And Don't forget, to... Daryl, he's also a master of disguise. I was just a criminal mastermind. Yes. So he is indeed. <laughs> yeah. 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 As as the title, The Gambler or The Great Gambler, suggests, and as we're still seeing in things like the James Bond movies today, there's plenty of card playing action in, in part one. Yeah. This is Gambling. where, my, yeah. This is where Mabuza in in part one of the two parter really, really sort of shows his metal in in terms of he's not only playing cards, he's not only there like Curly Sheaf in 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 the Bond movies, you know, sipping his cocktails and and being a whiz at at uh, whatever they're playing, you know, Canasta or whatever. He's actually exercising his powers of hypnosis and his powers of mind manipulation at the table and even in games that he's not playing in he's manipulating other people to win or lose so that he can profit from that he's got this big thing about uh, wanting to, to to make piles and piles of money so that he can fund his own future criminal enterprises and one way that he does that is around the card table mm. as do all Subsequent gangsters, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, criminal masterminds. Yeah, the trick for a director, of course, is making card playing cinematic. And I, I, I think Lang sets a lot of the um, a, a, a lot of the visual template for that here. You know, stuff that you're still seeing today, um, sort of close ups of the cards, close ups of the actors, and so on, and and um, you know, sort of beads of sweat on on people's brows and things. You know, it, it may look cliched now, but this is one of the places where those cliches were being invented. You know, we've we've got kidnapping, um, we've got characters. It's you know, a lot of the characters that are involved in these stories are in in the sort of higher echelons. You know, we're talking about sort of counts and countesses and people like this. Titled people that are getting involved in sort of grand opulence settings. You know, Mabuza doesn't mess about. If if he has to scrabble around in the uh, among the rabbles sometimes. He's got all the people that he can send off to do that. You know, he'll he'll go and sip champagne with the the toffs and uh, and rip them off and destroy their minds in the process. So this this film set, as you say, set the tone. What what were the influences that you think that Fritz Lang brought to this film to this film? Obviously he was influenced by Phantomas, he was influenced by um a lot of that sort of like pulp fiction and the, the criminal mastermind on the screen. Well, you, you've also got um, reality feeding into it because you, you, you're starting to see already at this point in the early 20s, you're starting to see post-First post World War, post the Great War, you're starting to see um, dark forces at work in German politics. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on, on German politics of the era, but, uh, you know, even even the layman sort of knows how how things began sort of brooding in the early 20s and what that eventually led to over the next 20, 25 years. Yeah. And Lang never held back from putting little references to that in, into his films. We're going to talk about that a little later with some of his other movies. But there's def, definite recognition on his part that things are changing in Germany and it's changing in a way that he doesn't like and that artists and poets and writers do not like because they can see that they're going to be one of the groups that are going to be on the end of what, what's coming. So, uh, so yeah, we're, we're starting to get the stirrings of, of, of the rise of uh, Nazism here. And Mabuza is almost a fictional, symbolic representation of that. So, yeah, he, he does play on the history of, of the sort of the pulp character like Phantomas, but Lang is one of the first people to actually make that collide with reality and try and say something important with this film instead of it just being a sort of comic book romp. Yeah, and obviously that came much more to the fore in 1933 with the testament of Dr. Mabuse, which was banned by the, uh, the, the, the Nazi government at the time. 
but we, again, we'll, we'll 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 cover that a little bit later. So, so like moving on from that that from Germany, I guess, not here. Over in America, we had the fir- world's first organized crime feature film with uh, Underworld, uh, the silent film, epic silent film, which basically set the tone for a lot of the early gangster movies that came in the 1930s with the coming of sound. Yeah, Underworld um, is interesting because it was made at a time when um, we we mentioned earlier on how um, the Griffith film, uh, Musketeers of Pigalli, didn't really quite connect with with an audience as such at the time. What happened later with Underworld and with the films that followed it is they were actually being made at the height of gang power in the major cities in the United States. So you get these situations where you've you've got George Raft, who's actually a member, a sort of prominent member of of a gang, who who then goes on to become a Hollywood star. It was reported that the big name gangsters, you know, up as, as high as people like Al Capone, were actually watching these movies. They'd have gone to see Underworld and they'd have gone to see the later films, and they they began sort of developing their own sort of dress sense and the way they carried themselves and the way they spoke and the way they acted based on what they'd seen in the movies. So, they, you know, it, it all sort of fed into each other. It's, it's such a weird itself. symbiosis, isn't it? That's sort of yeah, like, yeah. you know, we're the gangsters, these are the films are the gangsters, and then they, they start acting more like the films in the gangsters, and it comes all the through. But, like, yeah, I mean, Underworld, 1927, and then, like, just four years later, we get that incredible burst of of gangster movies in 1931 1932 that that, that really changed the face of of, of crime cinema particularly the, the the three that we're going to mention the public enemy little caesar and scarface yeah the first thing i want to say about that trio before we get on to talking about them individually is, is anyone who needs a sort of pointer to these films. I, I would say, think of Little Caesar as being the Long Good Friday of its day. Uh, think of Public Enemy as being the Mean Streets. And think of Scarface, The Shame of a Nation, as being the Goodfellas of the 1930s. I think that's your way into these. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the templates that these movies set for what a gangster movie is has pretty much not changed. No, you know, they they, no, they not still establish their characters. They're generally from a, a, a poor upbringing that turn to crime because of their upbringing. Um, and then they generally go a bit too far and then get brought down by their own, by their own hubris. Those are the sort of wider themes that are still prevalent in gangster and crime cinema today. But I think there are odd little details as well, which you'll still see right at the heart of the crime movie. And I think we can go on to talk about those as we address the individual films. Okay, which which one do you want to tackle with? I mean, obviously... I'd start start with Little Caesar, because I think chronologically, I think that was 1930, Public Enemy 1931, and Scarface 32. So if we go through with Little Caesar first, I I think that's perhaps the the lesser of the three, although that's that's like saying, you know, which Beatles album is the worst sort of thing, you know. it's, It's... you know, Little Caesar's only a ten out of ten movie. The others are sort of twelve out of ten. So uh, yeah, so yeah. As I say, quite a debt owed to it by the Long Good Friday, and I think Bob Hoskins has must have watched uh, Little Caesar over and over again because he actually looks a little bit like Edward G. Robinson, who's the star of this film, and they both play very similar sort of pug-faced aspiring gangsters. But, uh, yeah, it, it is, um, you know, it's your sort of traditional rise and fall of a gang boss. We see Robinson sort of working as a henchman initially, and he sees his way in. He takes every opportunity he can to sort of move up the ladder. He's obviously got this plan to be sitting behind the desk where his boss currently sits. And... Um, what he doesn't know that we we do know or we suspect or that we know from watching other films is that anyone who does that is going to come a cropper, you know, because if you're if you're rising to be in your boss's shoes, you've got to be aware that there's somebody else coming up to get in your shoes. And that's 
that's basically the situation with Little Caesar. Yeah, I mean, this was this was shot in 1930, released January 1931. So it's still, I mean, it's still the crossover from silent to sound was still happening around that period. Yeah, yeah. you know, they were still making silent films. They still it hadn't fully crossed over yet, particularly in 1930. So you still had elements of the way that this was shot and the way that this was edited was still very much had one foot in in a silent camp in some ways. This is why I, I think um, I think Little Caesars may be a notch down from Public Enemy and yeah. Scarface because they are incredibly modern films. They're very forward-thinking films. Mm. I think you could show both of those movies to an audience of sort of 18, 19-year-olds now, and they, they, they'd love them. Little Caesar might be a little bit of a harder sell to a young 21st century audience. I don't think they'd see quite as much in Little Caesar that they would connect with as they do in the other two films. But it, it is it is still a masterpiece. We don't want to do it down. It's still a, a classic. And if if Public Enemy and Scarface um, show the way forward for the crime movie in our modern era, Little Caesar showed the way forward for those movies. It was it was directly influential on what was coming in the year or two after. Yeah, I mean even even with Scarface, when they were trying to raise the funding for Scarface in 1931, 32, there was some thoughts that maybe there's oversaturation. We've already got little season, there's already public enemy being made. Are we making two? And he had to really push to get try and get Scarface made. But I think with you back to Little Caesar, I mean, obviously when you're watching it, there's quite a lot of voiceover, which surprised yeah. me early on. Um, and then, yeah, maybe, stuff- maybe that was that was a sort of showing off thing and saying, you know, we've got sound now, let's use it. You know, possibly, possibly, maybe just, just the idea of not being able to shoot sound effectively. Some of the sequences felt like silent sequences, yeah. Um, but, but. With the voiceover over the top, so um, yeah. So, but the whole the whole movie really is it, it, kind of like built around the screen presence of Edward G. Robinson. Then, yeah, you yeah. know, that's what that's what holds it, and that's what elevates it above that kind of uh, another silent crime film. But boy, does that work! Oh, how charismatic yeah. he is on screen. You know how believable his rise is. And how impressive he is in the scenes where where he sort of takes the, takes a tumble later on, and 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 his his rise to power begins to fade, you know. So mm. I think I think it needs a great character actor like that. It doesn't need a sort of you know. Um, as I've said, he's a very sort of pug faced. He's he's not the most handsome actor, but like like Hoskins in the Long Good Friday, you needed that sort of um, that sort of guy who could do character parts to be charismatic here you know and, and uh, but to be able to play the um the aspiring gangster and to be able to do the character stuff when things take a turn yeah there's a sort of a direct comparison i've made with the long Good friday and it feeds in there to what you were saying about use of silent film techniques Everyone remembers the, the fantastic um, final shot of Longwood Friday with Hoskins being driven, presumably, to his doom. We never find out, which is brilliant. But he's, he's being held hostage in the backseat of a car. And director John McKenzie just holds the camera on an extreme close-up of his face. And, and um, I gather that Hoskins was told to replay the entire film in his head. For, for like over about a minute and a half while they filmed the reactions on his face. And, um, and it's, it's such a brilliant, iconic moment of gangster cinema. But I think it's influenced by a shot towards the end of Little Caesar. There's a scene where Rico, the crime boss played by Robinson, is down on his look. He's, he's, his empire has crumbled. He's, he's out on the streets. He's a hobo, basically, and he ends up in this flop house. And he's drunken, he's got a bottle of whiskey or hooch or something. He's not had a shave for three weeks, and he's lying on a bed with all of these other tramps in the same room. And uh, one of the guys is reading a newspaper, and the newspaper's got a report all about the, the life and crimes of Rico. 
and they don't realise that the guy they're reading about is the guy in the bed opposite them. And what we get, it's very similar to that shot at the end of Long Good Friday. The camera gets held on Edward G. Robinson's face as this guy reads his life story out of the newspaper. And it's it's almost identical. But the whole drama of the scene is the reactions and how all of this plays out on Edward G. Robinson's unshaven face. So I bet that was a big influence on, on the finale of Long Good Friday. Yeah, I mean, that, that sort of like focusing on something other than the, the violence was one of the keys from, 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 from these three. But one of the things I pulled from when we watch these, a lot of the violence takes place off screen and you see either a silhouette or you see someone's face or, or, or you focus on something seemingly inconsequential whilst the violence is happening. Yeah, it just seems to, it seems to become, obviously at the time it was more to do with like censorship and not depicting too much violence on screen. But yeah, although, although we're, st- we're still pre-Hays Code at this point. We so are, we're, yeah, yeah. But, you know, but I think they were, they were still conscious of it, weren't they, at the time? I, I think so. And I think that went along with not wanting to glorify actual real-life gangsterism. I think Hollywood did have a bit of a conscience about that, at least for a while, you know. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe we're going to get on to talk about Public Enemy and Scarface. Maybe things start getting a bit blurred then. But, yeah, I think initially there was a bit of a conscience of, of hey, we want to make films about, about gangsters, but let's, let's try not to glorify it too much, you know. And I think they really did strive to do that initially. Yeah, And yeah, um, as you said, Adam, uh, the use of silent film techniques isn't used as a sort of old-fashioned thing. The, the, the gangster films, and Little Caesar in particular, I think, use it, use it as a virtue, especially in, in things like that shot I've just described. You know, yeah. That could have come straight out of a movie made five years earlier. But um, they, they use it, and they, 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 it's a great mixture of silent film technique and the new possibilities that sound can bring, because you've got the close-up on Robinson, which is typical silent movie, and allows him the chance to do a bit of silent movie acting. But you've also got what he's reacting to is a spoken voiceover by another character. So it beautifully sort of melds the two um, almost perfectly. If anyone's looking for a bridge between silent and sound film, I think that scene is the, the best thing you can watch. Cool. Well, let's move. Let's move on to the Public Enemy and onto the other two films that we talked about. Public Enemy, um, James Cagney, my favourite actor. My favourite actor. He's great in this movie, and I think I don't know. I, I think there's more to this movie than just a crime movie. I think there's yes. more going on with the characterisation. There's more going on with the uh, depiction of the characters and, and how the story unfolds that you would not have normally got in in other movies of the time. Yeah, so this this one follows that again that that now uh, fairly basic plot of of an impoverished kid uh, growing up to join a small crime firm, works his way up the ladder. It's got all those those cliches or, or, or tropes of the genre. It's got the father figure mob 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 boss that he ends up replacing. He's got the best friend who isn't quite as nasty and as ruthless as he is. We've got the Mean Streets thing in there, as sure. I say. You know, it's, it's De Niro and Keitel, sure, uh, that, yeah. that kind and, of relationship. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. any number of other. And then it's got, the obviously, the inevitable fall from grace that you have to have in all these movies as well. Again, that ties in with the Hollywood not wanting to glamorise gangsterism at that time. But marking your notes there, 1932, the last time Hollywood had a, had a conscience. It's uh, directed by William Wellman, who had made a couple of silent gangster movies, Chinatown Nights and Ladies of the Mob. Um, And I I think Public Enemy really stands out in his filmography. I think it's far and away the best thing he ever made. Um, Cagney, my favourite actor of all time, and he's never been better than in this movie for me. Um, It's just everything that he's all about. Um, 1931 was an absolutely tremendous year for movies. My all-time favourite film, Frankenstein, was made that year. And, in fact, an actress who appeared in Frankenstein, Mae Clark, appears in Public Enemy, and she's the recipient of the the famous grapefruit in the face 
Um, yeah, it's, it's such a harsh major. scene. That. Yeah, yeah, so unexpected, you know. Really, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And Cagney, the, the actors play it so well. You know, Cagney goes for it, she takes it. And um, and and then you know gives gives as good as she gets sort of thing, but uh, Cagney's character is is so so ruthless in this film. Even even tracking down a horse to 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 kill it at one point, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know, never mind other gangsters. You know, I'm going after animals. We it 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 is about so much more than the gangsterism and the violence. But um, but if you're just watching the film for the gangsters and the violence, this creates a lot of what we see in action and crime movies today. It can handle the sort of the small stuff. And by the end, you know, we've got the threat of an all-out gang war. So, so it can it can do the little intimate crime stuff, and it can do the big things as well. It can expand on that and sort of explode into action. Yeah, I think one of the, I think one of the when it's key things to, to allowing to do that is Cagney's performance. Yes, and how, how yeah. he grows into that role as he goes along, how he goes into the fully embraces the crime, the crime world and builds his own character up to the point of gang warfare yeah, in yeah. the movie. Yeah. And there's a sense of insanity within him as well. as the, 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 the more powerful he gets, the madder he seems to get. And I, I think that eventually leads to his downfall because he is completely out of control by the end. You know, There's another gang that's trying to do a deal with him. They're trying to sort of divide up territory. And, and he won't have it. And they, they've sort of said, look, I, either you accept this deal or it's going to be all out war on the streets. And the Cagney at the start of the film might well have sat down and said, yeah, let's shake hands on that. The Cagney that we see three quarters of the way through this isn't going to go near that deal. Yeah. No, he's, he's, he's lost it, you know. Um, but what a performance. And I can't think of another actor that could have played that, you know, uh, yeah, no, it, it's a stellar performance. It really is a stellar performance. Defines his career to some extent. Mm. I mean, the nuances in Cagney's role here. I mean, obviously, I mean, when I when I watched this again uh, this week, the, the sort of like the gay subtext came through yes. really strong yeah. on this. And then I googled that. I said, "Well, gay subtext in, in Public Enemy." There's hardly any writing on it at all. Mm. And it's just like it's like yes. blatantly obvious that they introduced this. Sort of like, well, he's a bad guy, but he needs some sort of at the time sort of some sort of deviancy about him. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. they introduce this gay subtext that he's, you know, he, the very, his very first line in the movie is something like, women women only cause trouble or something like that. You know, what do you want a woman for? Yeah, and if you look at later Cagney gangsters, they they also play on that sort of deviancy and, and that, uh, I mean, famously, of course, he, he plays a sort of mama's, bo- mama's boy in, um, in White Heat in 1949. Yeah. This is 18 years later, and, he, and he's, so, he's, so he's, he's almost 20 years older by this point, and he's, he's, um, he's still playing, that, that he, can, he can still do that same sort of role. He's been through so much in his career. He's done things like Yankee Doodle Dandy. He's, he's, he's fought, his, his musical roots have come out in that. He's had a chance to do sort of song and dance on screen. He's played a whole raft of uh, sort of um, a whole variety of character parts. And then in White Heat 1949, he comes back and he says, yeah, Remember me from Public Enemy. I'm still that same psychotic gangster. But again, within that, you've still got this hint of other things going on within the character that are a little more strange and um, a little more deserving of, uh, of exploration. Yeah, I mean, just, just and it's done handled. I mean, obviously, it's handled at the time as subtly as they probably could. I think I wonder. I do wonder whether they would have gone more heavy-handed. If it was remade now, or it was done yeah, now, yeah. whether those kind of things would be much more heavy-handed. Maybe not now, maybe like 30 years ago, something like that. Yeah. But he's, he's obviously in love with his best mate in the movie. <laughs> he puts his best mate above <laughs> everybody else in this. You know, um, he obviously was infatuated with the Nails character to the point where he goes and kills a horse, Daryl. Yeah, he goes and yeah, kills a yeah, horse yeah. In, in, as revenge because the horse killed Killed, killed his friend. Contrast all this with his attitude to women in the film. You know, we mentioned oh. the, the the May Clark, May Clark getting the half a grapefruit in 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 the kisser. So he's he, he's not a fan of women. He's he's he he, he likes the lads, you know. And uh, but uh, again, 
you know, to bring Martin Scorsese back in here, Scorsese, this was the first gangster movie that Scorsese ever saw, apparently. And he, he predictably loves it. And he's been quoted as saying, it paved the way for all of us. I mean, one of the, one of the things that we've not really spoken about massively so far over this way is just the visual look of it. It yeah, looks yeah. fantastic. There's a handful of sequences in this movie where you would you would put them up against any other sequences in any other movie and to say, yeah. you could you cannot film that better. But the bit yeah. where um, after after his best friend spoilers after his best friend is killed and he goes to seek revenge and he comes out and he's injured he's been shot and he's staggering in the streets and it's pouring down in rain like it's it's raining that only. It's seemingly only early Hollywood seems to be able to get some rain. Hollywood rain's bucketing it down, you know, and he's stumbling through the streets. And all all the cameraman just follows him, but they they make the point of dropping the camera to, like, waist height. Yeah. So it seems like he's towering over him, but he's uh, he's about to fall. He's always stumbling. It's such a brilliant shot symbolising his career, his his character, and everything in in that one sequence. So beautiful. There's technique here and there's set design and there's there's camera work that you you didn't quite get in Little Caesar. Little Caesar's a masterpiece, but Public Enemy is two notches above that. It's incredible. I want to talk a bit about the, the sound in the film as well, because we were talking about how sound was, was used in Little Caesar. Again, I, I think Public Enemy absolutely eclipses that. There's a bit towards the end of the film where a coal truck on the street empties its load and everyone on screen and everybody in the audience I'm sure jumps at that point because it sounds like machine gun fire it mm. sounds like somebody's fired a tommy gun and um and I don't know this but were they sophisticated enough to actually dub the sound of gunfire onto the shot of the coal truck it's whoever's designed has done the sound design for that little sequence has done a magnificent job because it gets you every time. And the one other thing I want to say about sound in the film is Martin Scorsese again, that guy again, he's well known for starting the tradition with Mean Streets that everybody has copied since of using pop music in his films instead of having a proper soundtrack, you know, an old-fashioned orchestral or traditional movie soundtrack. Mean Streets comes along. Kenneth Anger, of course, had done it before in his experimental films. But Scorsese in Mean Streets brought the use of pop records into popular use in, in film. Except Scorsese admits he stole the idea from the public enemy. Um, all the way through the public enemy, you hear in bars, at dancers, in people's apartments, coming out of radiograms or record players, or by a Salvation Army band playing on the street. You hear songs like Hesitation Blues, Maple Leaf Rag, I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles, Toot Toot Tootsie Goodbye. And they're being played in all these locations, and, it, and it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful how, how the movie sort of integrates all this. And Scorsese says that he got the idea of using pop music in Mean Streets from the way that Public Enemy had used pop music. Well, it does, I mean, does, it does establish it as, as being part of our world. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was hearing that. I I heard that song the other day and it's here in a gangster movie because gangsters were listening to that song as well. So it it does put you in the same world as those those characters rather than it being a separate Hollywood world. Yeah. And um, we've got to talk about the end scene uh, as a visual uh, to end on, uh, the bit where he he gets delivered to his house at the end. Oh, yeah, yeah. Such a striking image. It is. I don't want to say too much about that because I, I want people that haven't seen the film to, to watch it and, and be just stunned by the, the whole of the last five minutes. Yeah. P- even people that don't necessarily know Cagney's cinema inside out, they've seen impersonators doing all of the, the sort of you dirty rapping and everything, which, uh, which he sort of comes close to saying... Not in this film, but in a film that he made the following year called Taxi, where he plays a Jewish taxi driver. Um, and that, that's quite a hard-hitting sort of drama as well. And 
he, he has a line in that that sort of comes close to, to you dirty rat, you killed my brother. It's sort of those words in a slightly different order, you know. But every impersonator on the block sort of took that on. But the other thing that people sort of know about Cagney, even if they don't know his, his films, is that um, he became famous for long, drawn-out death scenes. <laughs> and if you watch Public Enemy... Don't just tune in for the last 30 seconds. You need to be there for about the last six or seven minutes to get the full impact. Let's say no more than that, I think. No, it's a stellar ending, so I think, yeah, go out and watch it. Let's move on to Scarface. But before we do, can we nip back over to Germany just to talk about the testament of Dr. Mabusa? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's a sequel to the 1922 movie, but it was now being made in 1933 where the gangster movies were being played in America, and I guess their influence was starting to to trickle over to Germany at that point. And you see some of that in um, in Mabusa as well. Yeah, yeah. Again, similar with the with the the, the opening sequence of Mabusa is fantastic with that silent, effectively a silent scene, but in similar way to the sound of the Tommy gun and the coal truck. It's got this rhythmic noise of the factory that just yeah. ratchets up the tension in that first five, ten minutes. Again, such confident use of sound so so early on in the game, you know. The introduction of the detective character in, Le, in Mabusa is, is done by whistling in a similar yeah. way that you get that in Scarface, as we're going to talk about in a moment. Yeah, but it, it, it happened in M. Lang's and in M as well, yeah. Previous film from a couple of years earlier. Yeah, so we, we we had that kind of ether of the world, of, of, of that style of introduction of those sinister characters again. But getting to M, massive influence on crime cinema. Yeah, well, again, a, a star-making performance for, for Peter Lorre in, uh, in M. You know, one of his very, very first roles, and his first major role, and... He, he just nails it. Um, there'd been a string of um, child murder and sort of paedophile cases in Germany in the 1920s. There were like four or five of these notorious uh, figures who'd been captured and imprisoned or executed. Peter Curtin was uh, one of the, the main figures, and people, people often think that... Um, the character in M is, is based directly on Curtin, although um, Fritz Lang did actually visit Peter Curtin in a, um, a, a secure uh, prison facility and, and did speak to him before making M. But Lang himself has said, oh, no, it's, it's a composite of four or five of these guys. There was this ugly sort of trend in Germany for... This, this particular type of crime in, in the mid-20s and a um, number of high-profile cases. One interesting thing here in terms of what we were talking about earlier is that Lang originally um, developed the project under the title Murder Unter Uns, which translates as Murderer Among Us. And the Nazi party got hold of the script you know, I, I guess there was some kind of film censorship thing whereby you had you send, had to send your scripts in for, for party verification or whatever. And they, they saw the first page of this script that said Morder Unter Uns on it, and they thought, he's talking about us here. This means us. He's having a go at us. And they didn't even turn to, you know, page 27 and see, oh, it's about a child murderer. But... Um, it did bring Lang to the attention of the Nazi party. Luckily, a title change to, to a more simple M allowed him to make the movie. But even then, I think he snuck in a few sort of uh, references to what was going on politically in Germany at the time. I mean, the whole thing ends up with a um, very interesting scene where you, you, for the audience, it's difficult to know whose side you're on because the child murderer is caught he's put on trial by a kangaroo court of fellow criminals and you you can you can sort of you know make whatever political comparisons you want there but uh, but even if you take that scene at face value it's it's got this interesting sort of dilemma going on in the minds of the audience who do we root for now you know do we do we like this criminal or do we like this other bunch of criminals yeah 
And then, of course, Mabuza Lang Lang does sort of two years later, 18 months later. And that has got genuine, overt, anti-Nazi connotations. The way, the way that Mabuza, or, or is he Mabuza in this film? That's something for you to decide. The way he's sort of portrayed here, the, the criminal mastermind and the master hypnotist of the... Um, of, of the, the two silent movies we mentioned has now sort of blossomed into something else entirely and is regarded often by contemporary critics and was regarded at the time as, is this a bit of a digger Adolf Hitler mm. who was just starting his rise to power? Well, it's remarkable that like, Fritz Lang, 1931, made M. It was his first sound movie. And the fact yeah. that it was, it was just so accomplished it doesn't feel like it's the it's the first sound movie of a silent film director. It's, no, no. It embraces sound in such a great way, and then obviously that continues on into, into Mabusa as well. But as we've said, that's you know the um, maybe maybe a little Caesar aside, that's happening in the um, in in the big American gangster movies and in a lot in a lot of American comedy at the time as well. You know, people like the Marx Brothers. It's all about that sort of comic interplay. And, and uh, you've got the screwball comedy starting to come through. So it's all about fast-talking dialogue. So uh, there did seem to be these directors and sound engineers had almost been champing at the bits to, to get sound into cinema. Yeah, and it moved at such a pace, that yeah, transition, yeah. that six months was a lifetime. You've made 80, 80 sound films now. We've got the hang of it now, so... But yeah, but moving back to 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 Hollywood again, and back to Scarface now, because if one thing heralded the coming of sound, it was the sound of the Tommy Gun being yeah, yeah. large on big screens. And uh, I don't think any of these films are as well as or embraces the glee of the Tommy Gun as as Scarface does. Indeed, it is absolutely loaded with action. It's mm. barely dated. Would would you wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I watched it two, two nights ago, and it just yeah. it blew me away again. I mean, and perhaps perhaps my ignorance of of Paul Mooney's career, but I, going in, I just thought, well, Paul Mooney didn't really nick, kick on, did he? In the same way as Cagney and Edward yeah, G. Robinson yeah. are known as, and it's like he's the Robert De Niro of the nineteen thirties. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. He's, he's doing. A, he had four Oscar nominations, uh, five Oscar nominations in his career, four in the nineteen thirties. He was the guy at Warner Brothers in the 1930s. Yeah. And I don't think that that's carried on to now. I don't think people look back at him as... No, he's this... not remembered for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's a real um, shame because, like, my God, what a performance this is. Yeah, he's, he's so great in this. Again, they, they, they didn't go for the pretty boy here. They went for someone who wasn't conventionally attractive. He, he wasn't Clark Gable or anything, but... So, so, so charismatic. You believe when the female characters in the film fall over him, you know, and, and flirt with him and so on, you believe it. You think yeah. they would go for this guy, you know. Um, he's, he's, he's no oil painting, but you can see why the ladies love him, you know. But yeah, in terms of action, violence, pace, impact, again, you could show it to an audience today. And they 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 wouldn't find it at all slow moving or dull or boring. Well, for for one thing, it's got more drive by shootings in it than any gangster rap movie of the nineteen nineties. One <laughs> one about every ten minutes. Yeah, it is ridiculous for its action. It is, it is whips along at a pace. It, 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 you believe the characters. You uh, yeah, Mooney just holds it all together with this sort of weird charisma. And force, force of the, of of character. It's just so well. It's also again talking about ripped from the headlines. You know, you talk about like strong parallels to the life of Al Capone. Yeah, it was written in January 1931. It was a six month shoot. Six months this shoot in this film, and and by September 31, there was a rough cut. And Al Capone was arrested and jailed in 1931. The St Valentine's Day massacre was 1929. Yeah, fresh from the they, headlines. They dramatise that briefly here, and they do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so nearly thirty years before some like it hot did. So yeah, and, and they're doing they're doing it like you say, <laughs> just after it happened. So yeah, I mean the guy's know. still knocking around. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, incredible. It's, it's incredible. got all those sort of like things in, involved in it. 
and such a great film, such a great film. And then, like you said, the, the sound of the Tommy gun, you have the whole scene where he gets the Tommy gun for the first time. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the, the, the best, the best bit of use of sound of the Tommy gun fire is a brilliant bit of, um, when, when they do one of those classic uh, sort of passage of time transitions. And it's it's a shot of, um, on one side of the screen, you've got a flipping calendar with the dates, the, on paper dates sort of flying across the screen. And instead of hearing the rustle of paper, you hear a burst of gunfire from the Tommy gun, you hear about 50 bullets going off. And it's about three second shot. Uh, and imagine it now, you know, Pages flying off a calendar and to that brew of, of Tommy gunfire. Incredible. And again, it shows such confidence in terms of, there's, you know, there's nothing there about, oh, we've got this new thing that's coming called sound. We don't know what we're doing. You know, they're so confident about using it and, and mixing the visuals in and overlapping and overlaying stuff it's it's just magnificent and again in terms of sound as you said earlier adam we've got the motif of uh of the whistling killer which yeah. we were talking about earlier trying trying to work out the timeline on this and saying that um m with its whistling killer whistling the hall of the mountain king had already been made and been released in germany but it hadn't come out in america yet so the makers of Scarface, Howard Hawks and Co, wouldn't have had a chance to see M at this point. And so it's all just, as far as we can tell, it's complete coincidence mm. that two filmmakers on, on continents on the opposite side of the world came up with this idea of the whistling killer. Yeah. Again, again, it, it follows a similar plot line to, to what you see, the, 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 the rise of a gangster from... Uh, second in command to taking over and, and killing his rivals and eventually you get his downfall. I mean, it's yeah, all like but... a similar, similar to the public enemy. You have those hints at deviancy in the, in the lead character, you know, in, the, yeah. in, in this one, they get hints at incest with his sister. You know, you obviously there's, there's, there's an unnatural um, relationship with his sister in this movie. Which is one of the things that carries through to the Scarface that, that people will know from the 80s, the Dharma yeah. Al Pacino film. Very, very similar sort of uh, use of the characters in, in that film, where they don't go overt with it in either movie, but it's, it's, it's under the surface. He loves his sister a little bit too much. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if that'll carry on into the third Scarface movie that we're going to be getting next year. Yeah, which uh, Guadagnino is, is yeah. doing, I believe. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Cool. Thank you very much, Daryl. That was a nice little trip round the early 1930s. I now have a list of films as long as my arm to go and watch. If I had to pick a film and say, you know, if you've not seen it, do watch it. Public Enemy is probably my favourite that we've talked about today. But I, I won't single that out. I'll say, because I think it would appeal really to a contemporary audience. Mm. I'd say, go and watch Howard Hawks' as Scarface. I must admit, Scarface really stood out for me when I when watching all these ones. That and, and, and The Testament of Dr. Mabusa. But Scarface was much the most easily accessible, I think, for me. It just yeah, rattled along at a pace. It's just, it's just a modern film. It, it, yeah. I think it's actually held up and not dated as much as the De Palma remake. Yeah. I'd yeah, go that far. Wow. Well, we'll watch them back to back and we'll let you know. Cool. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Once again, I want to thank Quad and the BFI for supporting us for the production of these podcasts. Um, I hope you're enjoying them. Do check out our website um, where you can find all the podcasts that we've done previously. And you can also find any supporting materials that we've done for these these shows. So we do um, a list of all the films that we mentioned today in, in one concise document, <laughs> which is becoming be bigger and bigger. Yeah. Anyway, thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Cool. Take care, guys. Bye. <laughs>